Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think you must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Welcome once again to the Arrow Man in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor, and that's about the least interesting thing you're about to hear. Because one of the things that has come up on this podcast before is the situation in sport for trans, non-binary and intersex people. And last week, the Danish Sports Federation released the results of a study that it has done into this matter. Now, Rikke Ronholt Albertson is a PhD fellow and co-founder of the Global Goals World Cup. And she is with me to talk about some of the interesting findings and recommendations that the Danes have discovered on our behalf. Rikke, could I just start before we talk about the, the report about talking just a little bit about your relationship to sport? Because I believe you were a Danish 400 meters record holder at one point, right? Yes, I, I technically actually still am, even though somebody has actually run faster indoors. But uh on paper, I'm we're not counting that. We're not counting that. Still the job. <laughs> still the job. <laughs> yeah, so I ran the 400 and, and the 800, and actually also the 400 hurdles, and and um, and so of course, if just you know, why am I even interested in this in this topic? Is that of course I had front row sort of seats to the the, the somewhat uh, knee jerk reaction of the World Athletics Federation when. You know, with the entry of, of some uh, DSD athletes, especially, you know, in my event in the 800 meter. And, and I, I really found it, it painful to see how the, the debate just spun out of control and was based on completely unfounded, um, you know, standpoints and lack of knowledge when really it was that as a world of sport, we have kind of put our head in the sand and pretended that this issue didn't exist when it in fact has always existed. Mm-hmm. We've just kind of pretended like it didn't. And, and so when my own, uh, my own federation started looking into this matter, I was, I was really adamant about being part of this working group because I think that we need a nuanced debate uh, as, as the most important part. Are you referring sort of specifically to how Castor Semenya was treated by the international athletics and yes. sporting community? Yes. I mean, jokingly, within the world of sport, the fact that, that DST athletes cannot compete in the 400, 800 and the miles specifically, we just kind of call it the Castor Semenya rules, because clearly it was something that, that the Federation did sort of in panic to fix the specific problem rather than base their you know, their recommendations on, on sort of clear principles and, and real knowledge. Mm. Uh, have you ever met Castor? Have you ever spoken to her about this? I have. I have. I haven't really spoken to her about this because obviously she's very, um, it's a very sensitive topic and, and not something that, you know, I think she, she discusses widely. I met her at a, at a competition where I was, um, I continued my, my, in my career, I was uh, also an expert commentator at the, at the Diamond League and, and so I met her there and, you know, she's a lovely person. And I think that the worst thing we can do is to make these debates about specific athletes. We have to have it. We have to have debates about the principles of it. We can't make it about this sort of, you know, judgment of the popular opinion of a specific athlete, whether or not she's feminine enough or what she looks like. And that, that is just unworthy. And we should, we should be doing better. Mm. 
I remember a, f- a few years ago, uh, I used to do the Diamond League event in Oslo and the one in Stockholm here for the Reuters news agency. And I remember I met her on a number of occasions and she just struck me as a girl, like a really shy person who really didn't want to be in this spotlight and who really, really didn't want to be talking about this issue. But she was sort of forced into it then. And the most intimate details of her life were discussed. Is this a common thing for trans people? Because, you know, we saw it with Laurel Hubbard at the last Olympics that all of a sudden, you know, th- these discussions come up and we're talking about testosterone levels. It, it can tra- is this what trans people can expect if they want to take part in the elite sport? I mean, I think when... If if we're gonna if we're gonna have a real uh, uh, debate about why you know this this whole this whole talk you know talking about this becomes so toxic, I mean I just this just today in the in the news I saw that there's like this smear campaign against Brigitte Macron that you know that the right wing uh, part of, of of France that's instigated that she's she's really a transgender person and she used to be a man, and just the fact that they thought that this was the worst possible accusation they could come up with, right? Mm. That says something about the reality for trans- transgender people and, and intersex people. And anyway, anyone who is sort of where their gender isn't, doesn't fall within the con- conventional binary are, are really still subject to horrible, horrible discrimination. And that's why also, you know, the whole... LGBT plus um, community and, and you know the trans transgender activists get so defensive and so sort of you know they're so active when when they see anything that could look like transphobia and I, I completely acknowledge that it, it's a horrible it's it's a horrible reality to um, to look at and and you know it's funny I thought about it. there are a lot of cultures where you know the third gender people are it's a real, it's an acknowledged category and they're considered kind of, you know, magical or holy or, or they, at least they're acknowledged as, as, a, as a part of society that's always existed and they have like a, an acknowledged place in our society. But in the West, we just went with like abominations that should be locked up and suppressed, right? And mm. that the world of sport, we have to acknowledge our role in, you know, continuing that very, very sort of simplistic binary view of the world where there are only men and women. We, we're part of, of um, you know, cementing that, that perspective and not acknowledging that, that that's not the reality and it never has been. Um, during last summer, I was privileged to be in Japan for the Olympics and I was at the Women's Olympic Soccer Final. And it was a fantastic event, despite the fact that my home country at the moment of Sweden lost on penalties to Canada. And in the Canadian team was the first non-binary person to win an Olympic medal in Quinn, the Canadian midfielder. Exactly. And Quinn's pronouns are, are, are they and there, and um, mm-hmm. they just get on with their thing. And like it yeah. was very matter of fact for that person, right? And it never became a big story. And I'm kind of annoyed that it didn't become a big story because this was actually a great a great victory for the trans, for the non-binary community. Why do you think, you know, we don't want to talk about Quinn. We don't want to talk about trans men doing women in sport, but it's mostly trans women that the witch hunt is against. I, I think, I think back to that, um... The, the value system is in sport is very much centered around a, um, a very sort of conventional and quite, I mean, 
uh, what what's the right world is almost like um it's a very very stereotypical masculine ideal mm. that at all costs must be maintained and so when you think about the fact that i mean in denmark we're still waiting for the first openly um, homosexual male soccer player to come out and and knowing the statistics we know they're there but nobody in 2022 has come out and said i'm gay and that says something about i mean we we were in this when we did this report we were in a working group with um with a lot of people you know um stakeholders in this whole area and and one of my my, my favorite uh people in this group is, is the head of the lgbt plus um community in denmark and she does say you know the world of sport is the last bastion of homophobia and and she is not wrong i mean we we really have some work to do with working on how how we look at and how we talk about gender in sport and and we still have these really extreme, you know, fan bases, especially in soccer, that that just, I mean, that, that, that that's nothing. That's not something that we're that we're really proud of, and it's something that we have to work on. And so, funnily enough, in female sport, it's always been quite acceptable to be lesbian, and that's also why Quinn is is not considered like she's not so or they are not so controversial because they just they're non-binary but but they look pretty much like a lot of the the, the the women that are that are identified as female or but that are that are lesbian so being masculine in women's sport really isn't you know considered as wrong mm. as uh, as being a man who is um feminine and and that that's just absurd and but that is kind of some of the basis of why this this debate is just so difficult to have um, tell me about the work that went into making this report. So what was what was the idea behind it and how did you go about collecting the data and the ideas and having the discussions? You mentioned the head of the Danish LGBT community. I'm sure you, you talked to the sports. What was the process like? Yeah, so so again, this wasn't like um, this wasn't like a scientific study. Uh, this was this was basically saying we need to come out with with some with some guidelines and recommendations for we have we have 62 um, federations that that we cover so we're the we're the confederation of Danish sports and and as such we cover both you know leisure activities mass participation children's sport and all the way up to the to Olympic level sports we're also the national Olympic committee and it was kind of in a recognition in recognition that we just don't know where we really stand we haven't had the debate and and one of the reasons also that that i insisted in being in this working group and why i was i was pushing for you know for us to kind of continue this work is that i could see that the there was a tendency that that the way to deal with it was kind of like well we'll wait and see what happens there aren't that many transgender athletes out there so we'll just We'll just see and take it on a case by case basis. And, and back to what happened with Cassie Semenya and Laurel Hubbard, that is like the worst approach I think possibly to take because then, then it becomes a debate about a specific athlete and their worthiness in, in a given category, which is just totally unworthy and beneath us. So, so we really push for our federations to start having this debate and consider how do they want to implement 
if, if they want to implement eligibility criteria for the women's category, what should they look like? At what level are they really necessary? So, you know, to get a little bit into the recommendations, we have seven recommendations and the six of them are about inclusion in, uh, in, in leisure sport and, you know, mass participation events where we're really pushing for, for federations to look at how can we remove barriers for participation for transgender, non-binary and, and intersex athletes, because in, in, for most part, they're unnecessary. And, and this is where the, you know, the transgender activists always, you know, there's always this argument of overlap, which is completely fair and right in the broader population. So of course, between all general men and women, there, there are huge overlaps in, you know, in physiological abilities. And, and there's no reason why we shouldn't uh, have a, a, quite, a quite loose and inclusive approach to, you know, to who can participate in sport, how. And there's also a lot of um, activities, especially when we look at you know, children and young people where we split up uh, the genders out of pure habit, mm. you know, where it doesn't really serve much of a purpose other than maybe, um, you know, indoctrinating our poor children into these gender stereotypes that, that serves nobody. So, so we actually think that, I mean, we have a, a very general value about inclusion, but that also means including a lot of people who you just may not feel like they completely fit into the into the boxes that mm. that we tend to um, tend to offer in the world of sport and and by opening up those boxes and sort of mixing it up a little bit we might make it easier for a lot of people to participate in sport who maybe did not feel that they completely fit into um, to the categories as they existed. Mm. So just to reiterate, six of the seven recommendations are to do with inclusion. They're not to do yes. with Castro Semenya at the Diamond League. They're to do with me going down to the football pitch at the end of my street, me going to the martial arts gym that I train at every day. It's about that level. It's about inclusion on that level, right? Exactly. Why was because like the debate tends to focus around the uh, the athletes going to the Olympics. Uh, Kirsty Miller, who I'm sure you know from Australia, yes. was a, a former state champion, uh, represented her country uh, pre in her previous life, and then went on to sort of have all sorts of treatment, and her sort of performance fell away. But we tend to always speak about trans athletes at the elite level. But what you're saying is that you know the vast majority of people who want to compete, who want to do something, they want to do it like you and I do. They want to have fun with this. So is exactly. Is that, yeah. And, and, and I want to say that's also where the, de the debate gets sidetracked because what happens is that people take the, the extreme reality of elite sports and then they try to apply it across sport as a whole. And that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, but, you know, really, it's, I think it's because in, in sport, well, in, in society in general and in sport in particular, we we're sort of trained to apply this like very linear binary logic to every problem, right? So it's either or, it's the ball is in or it's out, you win, you lose, and you're a man or a woman. And we want like to make blanket statements that, that count for, you know, that apply to everything. But in this specific topic, that kind of lo logic isn't fit to solve the issue. So anyone making blanket statements about the inclusion of transgender athletes across all sport, they will be wrong at some level. They will be wrong for some sports and at some levels of sport. So, so what we really acknowledged in, 
you know, in the Danish Confederation, that this is this is what you would call a, a paradox, where you have, you know, you have contradicting but yet very interrelated elements, and and paradoxes can't be, you know, they can't be resolved. They can be sort of managed and balanced, and and acknowledging that really helped us come out with these recommendations because we're really balancing sort of three elements of, you know, fairness, inclusion, and safety. And, and that, is, that is the balance that, that each sport and each level of sport kind of has to find, you know, what is, what is most important in this case? And for the vast majority of people participating in sport, we would say inclusion is the most important thing. Mm. Also, as you said, you know, and there's a lot of people saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm really short, so that, that's also unfair. And, and, you know, it kind of is, I mean, when I was at my, you know, peak level, I, I could beat a lot of men, you know, and, but that doesn't mean that the women's competition category isn't meaningful at the elite level. And I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll be getting into why we ended up with the seven recommendation as well, because mm-hmm. uh, it, but it's just, it's just a matter of making sure that we, that we apply the appropriate logic to the appropriate, you know, level of sport that we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Well, let's take that seventh recommendation. What is the recommendation for elite sports in terms of how they should handle these things? Because these are the things that are going to keep coming up. We can talk about the grassroots oh, yeah. all we like, but this is going to keep coming back. So can you just explain that to me, please? Yeah, so um, so, so the debate, I mean, to, to understand why we actually came up with that seventh recommendation, which is that, that you have to sort of weigh the the sort of interest of, of a biological uh, female athletes in the women's category when you when you consider elite sports that that's sort of the gist of it but basically to to understand how that came about is to also understand the purpose of, of competition classes in sport in general that i mean originally there was only the men's class i mean because most sport was created by men for men so the one class there was was the open class which was the men's category and then Gradually, you know, women fought for their right to actually compete in sport, and and we have developed more and more classes like age groups and weight classes in swim sports because we want to be able to include and acknowledge more types of talent. So the classes are designed to acknowledge exceptional, you know, athletes within that category, and as such, they're actually, I mean, they're protected categories. So if we want to find the best junior athlete you have to be a junior to compete in that category. If we want, you know, we have weight classes, so you can't just wake up and feel like I weigh 60 kilos. You will actually be weighed to, you know, to participate in that class. So it's quite, it, it's very acknowledged and recognized that, that in order to participate in a specific class, there are some, um, there are some qualification criteria, there's some eligibility criteria. And what we had to have sort of a principle of discussion about was, is it reasonable that the women's competition class would be the only class that you can self-identify into? Mm-hmm. And, and our, our very, very principled you know, answer to that is, is no. We understand that there are some sports, may not be all sports. I mean, some sports are, are not very physical. I mean, we talked to this, the um, the sailing federation where they said, well, you know, men and women have always been sailing together. It's not really an issue. If you look at horse riding, they, they basically never had gender classes because it wasn't relevant. Um, but there are some very, very physically um, conditioned sports where it does make sense to have some kind of criteria for how you qualify 
for this given class. And that, you know, as far as that concerned, it's, it's very much aligned with what, you know, the International Olympic Committee came out with a new framework in November. Um, and I can say, you know, they say the, the very first sentence, it says the credibility of competitive sport and particularly high level organized sporting competition relies on a level playing field where no athlete has an unfair and disproportionate advantage over the rest. So, so far they say, you know, we, we recognize that the individual federations may need to establish some eligibility criteria for their sport. So you've done some of the thinking for them, but now they have to go off and do the work and say, okay, what is my sport? What are the inherent advantages, right? Could I ask yeah. you about this? There's a difference between social and medical transitioning. And again, this is very much from uh, for trans women, okay? Because medical transitioning, uh, testosterone, all these various different chemical therapies do have the ability or the tendency to lower testosterone. And in fact, if, if you talk to Kirsty Miller, she will tell you yeah. that her performance fell off a cliff there. Are those the kind of things you're talking about? Or could it be possible for somebody at the elite level in the 800 meters as you were, trans, uh, transfers from competing as a man to competing as a woman only socially so that they retain everything there? That would be a case, I assume, where you wouldn't consider that to be fair. Yeah, and this is, this is really the, the extreme case that we had to consider. So. Um, you know, what the media did when we came out with the report was, of course, spinning it and, and what they kind of, what they translated the headline into was, you know, Danish Confederation of Sports says transgender women shouldn't compete against, you know, biological females. And that is, that is not at all what we said. Mm. I, I completely acknowledge that, that there will be some, you know, some situations where the medical, you know, treatment and the, you know, gender reassignment surgery means that a given athlete is, is really training and competing under pretty much the same physiological conditions as a, you know, a woman who was assigned, uh, you know, biological female at birth. Mm -hmm. And so as such, it, it would be completely fair for them to compete. Um, but we had to consider the very, you know, extreme case. And this is also where this whole, um, you know, overlap discussion falls short when we come to elite sports, because when we look statistically um, at the elite level, so, you know, the whole thing about differences in height and length of arms and such, that has already been um, selected for when we get to the elite level of sport. And there is absolutely no, there is no overlap between like the, the very best females and the very best athletes in the sport. So if you take my own sport, which is track and field, there's about a, you know, 10, 10 plus percent difference between the, the performances of the very best women and the very best men. Mm. Um, whereas within, if you take like the top 20 very best women, there might be like 1% difference between their, you know, between their performances. So, so that is to say in elite sport, 10% is huge. I mean, this is like me racing Wilson Keepcater and he's like putting on his sweats by the time I get across <laughs> the finish line. So, so, so the, the idea that, you know, the credibility of competitive sports, that that's really what we have to look at. And, and so we, we say that if we really want to acknowledge the most talented um, female athletes sort of under their own, you know, at their own premises, if we want to acknowledge women's sport, then it is fair that there are some kind of, you know, criteria for, for how you actually qualify for that category. And, and I think even, you know, I heard Christy's uh, podcast and she even recognizes that, 
of course, there's a huge difference in performance before you actually start undergoing the medical treatment and at different stages of your, you know, of your transitioning um, towards a woman. So that is where we need to start developing the knowledge and also understanding how different is it between different sports or a sport can, is, for example, is, is cycling, swimming and, and track and field is pretty comparable in terms of how your body actually responds to, you know, to the, the process of, of gender reassignment and how does it actually influence how your body responds to training and retains, you know, fitness levels and stuff like that. Because because I've also heard, um, you know, I listened to the, there's a guy named Russ Tucker who's done a lot of podcasts about this issue, and I think he quite precisely describes the science of it. But I don't think he necessarily acknowledges the the you know the human feeling that that Christie also explained of how how much you actually, how physiologically taxing it is to undergo this reassignment and how much you lose to like, um, how your fitness level drops and and how, how able you actually are to perform. But we don't have the data of sort of what would it look like if a top, top male elite athlete at the height of their capability starts this process, continues to train throughout the process and, and where does this, so where are they compared to their baseline? If their original baseline is I'm an elite male athlete, what, what actually happens? This is, this is the kind of knowledge that we, that we need. And, and this is also the kind of knowledge that we should base this discussion about and try to kind of read out the whole, you know, normative value judgment of whether or not these are real women or not and who should or shouldn't like, like this, this I don't really think this is relevant I think what's relevant is that can can these these people compete in the women's category and it's still being a fair um, measurement of, of, of whether or not we're actually celebrating the the best female athlete or, uh, or should they maybe have their own category so we can actually acknowledge and recognize exceptional talents that are, you know, transition people or that are, you know, intersex people that, that actually are, are still fantastic athletes. Mm-hmm. Maybe they may not quite, you know, qualify in the specific category that's intended to, you know, to recognize female athletes. Certainly in Scandinavia, a vast majority almost of the people who take part in sport are children and young people. And I remember a couple of years ago, I was coaching, I'm not going to say where or what sport or anything, just not to identify the person, but this relatively young child that I thought was a boy, like I sort of spoke to him, I said, no, no, I'm a girl. And I grew up in Catholic Ireland in the 1970s and 1980s, right? These things don't exist in our world, you know? No. And I just went, okay. It's like I, I'm not having this discussion with you in front of everybody else. You're a girl. You walk away. You know that's you. That's fine. What would, the what the recommendations around inclusion? What would the, the like of the six recommendations, the six first recommendations? What would they say about the cases of children like that or young people? Yeah. Is it a case of okay, just accept them for who they, who they are because that's you know yes. who they say they are is who they are. Exactly. And and this is again where we're specifically in the area of children. I mean, we one of the one of the people who participated in our working group is is the head of um, the, the the organization that supports transgender children, mm-hmm. and 
it broke my heart to hear the stories about how they end up leaving the world of sport because it's so uncomfortable to be forced into these boxes where they may not even themselves know exactly yet where they belong. Yeah. And, and just the fact, I mean, also, I mean, I've been doing all these, this media based on this uh, report and I'm always asked, well, is it a big problem? How many transgender people are actually out there in the clubs? And I'm like, you know, none, but we also have to ask ourselves why, because yeah. maybe we just effectively scare them away by forcing them into these, you know, binary stereotypes. And, and so that's our loss that we're not able to actually make space for, for these children and these people who of course need physical activity mm. and, and the communities around sport as much as everybody else. And, and this is really why, I mean, this is a podcast so you can't see what I look like, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm a black female in, uh, in Denmark and I know something about what it's like to be different. I grew up being the only brown child I knew. Mm. And, um, and the world of sport was where I found my identity and my community and where I was welcomed, you know, even though I was different, I was welcomed for my talent and for my love of the sport. Hmm. And, and it really, really breaks my heart that, that there's this whole group of people who do not feel welcome in the world of sport because they don't fit into our stereotypical expectations of what they should look like. Hmm. And, and this is even down to, I mean, the, the, the very the very sort of physical experience when you, you walk into any sports facility in Denmark today, there's the women's changing rooms and the men's changing rooms, and that's it. Mm. And so you're already there and you're sending a clear signal to these children that if you don't know what door to enter, you're wrong. Like you don't exist. There's you something wrong here. with you. And, and already there, we don't think about how you know, kind of how violent that actually feels when you're already vulnerable and, and you're not quite sure. And, and part of what scares um, a lot of the transgender athletes away from, from wider crowd also here from the working group is just the uncertainty of how they'll be received. Mm -hmm. Will they even be allowed to train with the, with the team that they prefer? If that team goes into competition, will the other team object? And, and this is why it's so important that we start being very explicit about having some inclusive guidelines, especially when, you know, competition and it isn't, isn't the most important reason we're together. It's actually to be, you know, to do physical activity and, and to have a, a sporting community. And the purpose of that community isn't to exclude a whole group of people. It's actually to include as many as possible. I mean, that's, that's what we pride ourselves on in sport is that we're inclusive, right? Mm. And, you know, we, we contribute to the cohesiveness of society, but so far it's, yeah, we're inclusive if, you know, you fit into our categories, right? Mm. Um, so we, we do have some work to do. Uh, Ricky, I just have one last question for you, and I'm going to apologize for it in advance, right? I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here. I'm going to ask you to wind back the clock a few years to when you were competing at the elite level. You're competing in the 800 meters in the Diamond League here at the Olympic Stadium in Stockholm, and you see coming out of the tunnel uh, a woman the size and the strength and the power of Castro Semenya. What would you think as a competitor there? Would you think uh, that's not a woman? That's a threat to me. I'm so disappointed. That's a time that I could have had and she's going to beat me. Uh, how would that affect you mentally, do you think? You know, could you have the compassion and the understanding that you have or would you have a different reaction maybe? Well, again, 
I, I want to return to the to the you know the seventh uh, recommendation because the understanding and compassion is is for is for these people in general in society, but the acknowledgement that there is a real physiological reality that underlies the women's category. So it isn't just, it's of course, it's also a social construct. And this is what we have to sort of dismantle. So I'm not in any way challenging, you know, who gets to be called a woman or to be recognized as a woman in society. But I do acknowledge that the women's in elite sports, the, the women's category was also designed to acknowledge, you know, female athletes that are really, you have to kind of think of it as a, it's almost like a, a handicapped category because compared to physiological males, all data shows that, I mean, we have different physiological, you know, capabilities. So we have a higher um, body fat, we have lower blood volume, we have less muscle mass, and all these are the things that determine, you know, sports performance. So, so if we want to acknowledge the, the strongest female athlete, the best female athlete in, you know, in a given sport, we also have to acknowledge that, that there are some criteria for who we can call female athletes. Otherwise that category doesn't really make any sense. Mm. So I would expect my federation to have um, determined who could fairly compete in that category. And if I see a super tall, super strong, you know, woman standing next to me on the start line, I just recognize that man, she's just, super, she's just talented within my category. Mm. But I would be disappointed if I realized that she doesn't exactly, she doesn't actually, you know, physiologically play by the same rules as I do. She may have access to, you know, much higher levels of testosterone. She may have um, much higher muscle mass. It may be much easier for her to lower her body fat without, you know, uh, com compromising her, you know, her physiology. I mean, th these are the these are the challenges that all female athletes struggle against. And to compete against somebody who doesn't, who isn't sort of underlay the same physiological rules, that's frustrating. Mm -hmm. So of course, I mean, I've I've trained with with boys and men my whole life, and while I thought it was it was great uh, to have them as, you know, as, as pacers and, you know, give somebody to push me at practice, it would also be really annoying that <laughs> they could just drop like two kilos just by stopping to drink Coca-Cola for like a week or something like that. And they would just get so much better every year. Like if they're 17, they get so much better just by turning 18, just because. <laughs> so of course, I mean, their bodies just function differently. And, and so, and, and in acknowledgement of that, I really appreciate that there is a women's category where I could be recognized for the talent that I had. If, if it hadn't existed, I wouldn't have had a career. Mm. So, so that's, the, that's the fundamental principle that, that we also have to acknowledge. And, and I'm really sad that, you know, in this debate, some of the female athletes that have kind of opened their mouth and, and, and said something about this have been completely you know disseminate like they've been they've just decimated in in the public debate called you know all kinds of names i even heard that some received death threats and it, it, this isn't about transphobia this is about if you have ever actually you know trained and competed as a woman with 
with men and boys, you, you know how much of a difference there is. So, so you would appreciate that there are some kind of criteria for, for how you actually compete in the women's category. And, and that, that's basically all you know, that, that any of these women have, have ever sort of tried to say. And I think it's really important that we, that we disconnect it from, from the horrible um, sort of value-based, ideologically-based uh, bashing of, of trans people and non-binary and you know, in general, which really we, it, it has nothing to do with that. With respect, Rick, uh, these recommendations are brilliant. The report is fantastic. I read it last week. But the one thing that, that struck me with everything that you're saying here, that th there needs to be criteria, we need to be able to say, okay, this is fair, this is not fair. Is that essentially not what happened to Castor and to other intersex athletes or other female athletes because they were singled out and they were told, no, you're different. Now, the way that happened may have been different to what you envisage, but at the end of the day, we're still asking them to do the same thing. We're still saying, maybe you have to take some medication. Maybe you have to reach this level. Do the two things have anything in common or am I completely mad? Well, I think what's, what's most important about when we talk about the, the competition categories in, in sport is that they're very, very clear and transparent. So they can't be arbitrary. We can't, we can't wait to apply them until we actually have the concrete athlete. And, and this is also, I mean, that shows the absurdity that, you know, specifically for, for, for transgender, uh, non-binary and intersex athletes, we're trying to, I mean, we risk that what we do is we wait, we penalize them for being too good. Like, so, so that doesn't, doesn't make any kind of sense at all. Like as, as a transgender athlete, you need to know what the criteria are. And if you lived up to them, you are qualified and you shouldn't justify any performance that you have. Like it's, so it's up to the sports to decide when do we acknowledge these athletes and when they're acknowledged and they have lived up to the eligibility criteria, we stand behind them. Like we protect them. We won't be discussing, you know, whether or not they're, they're, they're right or wrong. They, they have undergone this. And, and I think that it's also, it's really in the interest of these athletes to comply with the eligibility criteria. I mean, it's kind of like um, for elite athletes, we undergo all the VADA, you know, the, the doping uh, rules. We do the, the uh, whereabouts and we undergo testing. We show up when we're supposed to, and we actually do this to protect the integrity of our sport and protect the value of a gold medal. Because if, if you win gold in the, in the shadow of, of doping accusations, it, it decreases the value. And so the same thing counts that, that if someone like Castor Semenya and or a transgender athlete, when they win, they should be celebrated for their performance and for the fact that they have actually reached these results, training and, and working and with the talent at, at an equal level or similar to what other women do and such, they should be recognized for that. Other than, you know, this debate shouldn't be about whether or not they have an, an unfair advantage because we should have already, we should have adjusted for that. We should have protected them against that beforehand. It, it shouldn't be something that we do retrospectively. So basically, you know, in the scenario that we painted, Castor or somebody like her should not just turn up on the line beside you. We should have decided these things years beforehand. Look at, Wait. Um, 
I have one last question for you, and thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating to speak to you and to get this insight. How have trans people, non-binary people, intersex people reacted to this report coming out? Because obviously, it word got to be here in Sweden, and you know, but I, I'm not sure. Is it available in English? I can't remember if I read it in Danish. I think no. I think it's in Danish. Um, yeah. And of course, it's also. I mean, this is this is very. Um, we're just a very very Danish organization, and we're not trying to you know. Uh, suggest that these rules count for for the whole world, and and I think that the, the way it's been received is that they're very happy with the first six recommendations that they think are are really a step in the right direction, uh, and and I actually I also have to say that I'm incredibly thankful for the the patience that they have showed. I mean, being in this working group, we basically started where most of us start with zero knowledge and we made so many mistakes like calling people the wrong you know pronouns and i mean that we were wrong on so many levels so they've been very very patient and they really tried to enlighten us about also the reality that that they're facing and what we could do to be better at you know including them um and it's been a really humbling experience, it's been a, quite a, a steep learning curve for all of us to, to, to engage in this. And I think that the report also reflects that, that we really try to listen. Um, what they think about the seventh recommendation is that they think we're not explicit enough that, um, of course, the individual federation shouldn't make rules that are, you know, more restrictive than the, their international federation. So, so we do not recommend that we're in a situation where we have a Danish athlete that's actually qualified under you know, international rules, but that isn't qualified, for example, yeah, for the Olympics with the local. So, so we, we recommend that our federations align themselves with their and orient themselves towards their international federations to see what are their rules at the elite level. But then that they also, instead of just implementing those rules throughout all their activities that may be unnecessarily restrictive, they really make a decision. So where does elite level start? Mm. Like when do we really need to start implementing these rules and where is it just unnecessarily just both bothersome and, and becomes a barrier for, for just ordinary people to participate in leisure sport. So, and, and I think that they appreciate that. And then they also would have liked us to explicitly say it, which is something I completely agree with is that you also have to look at the time of transitioning. So I think in the future, as the as the stigma of being a transgender person falls away more and more, you will see children transitioning before puberty, which means that they don't have the benefits of going through, you know, puberty as a male, which is primarily where these, you know, benefits start, like, you know, manifesting. So it might be possible that, you know, transgender people who transitioned before puberty do not need to you know um comply with with any eligibility criteria they might just be acknowledged as as their um identified gender with no problem and and that i think we could have probably been more explicit about but again we have zero data on it and and that's where just kind of like the ioc says that it's a living document we it's i mean we're limited by the knowledge we have right now and i'm sure that you know five years from now, 10 years from now, we're going to know so much more about specifically with athletes, how, how does this actually work? Because a lot of the, the data we have, it's, it's not from, you know, it's not from transgender athletes, it's just from transgender people in general. And we're just, we, we acknowledge what we don't know. <laughs>
Exactly. And I think that's, you know, it, 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 there was some great work done and you, you should be congratulated you and the working group for the great work that you have done. And we acknowledge that there's an awful lot more work left to do, not just in sports, but also in journalism and how we cover uh, this story and this topic. Ricky, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. Thank you.